All right, we're going to read this morning from Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, open it up. Open it up to the back, the New Testament section. If not, grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It may not be the exact same translation you have, but that's okay. Uh, sometimes that actually helps us to get the meaning when we see different ways of describing the same thing. So this is Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to re- read verses 23 and 24. Listen for the Word of God. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. On a cold afternoon in January 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport. Less than three minutes into the flight, while they were still ascending, the plane struck a flock of geese at an altitude of 2,800 feet. Both engines shut down. The airplane was now a glider. The pilot was a man named Chesley Sullenberger, known to most of us as Sully. How many of you remember this story? Yeah, okay. So Sully radioed air traffic control tower. We've lost thrust on both engines, he said. We're turning back towards LaGuardia. But pretty soon, Sully changed his mind. The airport was too far away. They were surrounded by tall buildings in New York City, the only sufficiently level, smooth place that they could land this plane was the river. So Sully radioed again. He said, we can't do it. We're going to be in the Hudson. Now, you can go on the internet, and I encourage you this afternoon, go on the internet and listen to the radio exchange between the pilot and the air traffic control tower. One of the most extraordinary things about this episode was that the tone of voice in which Sully radioed that he would be landing his plane in a river was the same tone of voice that you and I use to order breakfast at Panera. Yes, I'd like a bagel toasted with cream cheese, please, and also this giant aircraft is going to land in a river. And the radio control tower person responded, I'm sorry, say that again. And by then, the the signal apparently was lost because another pilot in the area chimed in and said, I believe he said he's going to be in the Hudson. So sure enough, Sully Sullenberger landed an Airbus A320 in the icy waters of the Hudson River, saving the lives of all 155 people who were on board. In an interview with Katie Couric, Sully explained what he was trying to do. He said, I needed to touch down with the wings exactly level, with the nose slightly up, and at a minimum, at a minimum flying speed just above the minimum but not below it. And I needed for all those things to happen simultaneously. And Katie Couric said, well, that's a big if. And Sully said, I was sure I could do it. He said, I was sure I could do it. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing to me. So this water landing came to be known as the miracle on the Hudson. It was described as, quote, the most successful ditching in aviation history. The pilots and the flight attendants were recognized nationally for their heroism and their unique achievement. Now, brothers and sisters, here's my question to you. If you're a passenger on that plane... 
Aren't you glad that God made Sully Sullenberger an expert in aviation and not in theology? There are so many ways that we can do the work of Christ in the world. Welcome back to our series. It's called 9 to 5, Mission in Everyday Life. Friends, this is an invitation to use your imagination. I want to ask you to think and to dream with me about what would it be like if all the disciples of Jesus, that means you, not just pastors and missionaries and chaplains, but all the people of God were part of God's mission in the world. What would it be like if we thought of the work of pilots and of teachers and of grandparents as holy work, work that contributes to the common good, to the flourishing of people who God loves. What I want to suggest to you is this takes integrity. In other words, integration of faith and life so that who we are on Sunday is the same person that we are Monday through Saturday. There's an author named Gregory Pierce. He put it like this. If people cannot find any spiritual meaning in their work, they are condemned to living a certain dual life not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. He says, they need to discover, we need to discover that the very actions of daily life are spiritual and enable us to touch God in the world, not away from it. Friends, we are not meant to be one kind of person on Sunday and somebody else on Monday, right? The world has a word for that. They they call it hypocrisy, right? So we need to be the same. We need to have integrity. We need to have integration between our faith that we express on Sunday morning and how we live our life out there in the world. We need to get our heads around this idea that the ministry of the church is not limited to the work of the pastor. The ministry of the church is not limited to these four walls in which we gather on Sunday morning. So I want to invite you today to think with me about what this would be like, about what it would mean for our worship to be not just one hour once a week, but for worship to be a way of life for the people of God. That what we do in this room is is incredibly significant, but that what we do out there in the world is also incredibly significant. Imagine with me if our work was the worship of God. It's raining, isn't it? In Exodus 3, uh, God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and uh, tells them that the sign of their freedom will be that they will worship God on this mountain. Now, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar and neither am I, but I can tell you this. The word that is translated to worship is the same word that means work. Work and worship in the Old Testament here come from the same root. In fact, that same word is also in other places translated as service. It's translated as cultivation. Think about the word service for a second. We use service to mean the worship service, right? We also mean mean it to uh, what we do for other people out there in the world. You see how service has this double meaning. Work and worship go together. A word that we use in the church is liturgy. How many of you have ever heard the word liturgy before? Liturgy just really simply means the rhythm of our gathering and how we engage with God and with one another. What it literally means, did anybody know what liturgy literally means? It means the work of the people. It's from a Greek word, liturgia. It means the work of the people. In other words, we come to do labor, to do work in this room. And probably it's not necessarily with our hands, but it's certainly with our hearts, isn't it? We work with our hearts to show God how much we love 
God. But what if the work of the people was not just the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray? What if the work of the people also included uh, making lesson plans and creating spreadsheets and landing planes and sitting with clients and treating patients? Friends, all of this is the work of the people of God, and all of it can be for the glory of God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. He said, to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. You remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about this false divide between sacred and secular? Okay, he's saying the same thing. He said, the, the one who works puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. Vestment, you need to know, is kind of a fancy church word that refers to like the robes that we sometimes wear and the different things that the priest or the preacher will wear. Uh, he says he sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. You know what a sacrament is? In our church, it's one of two signs of God's grace for us, one being baptism, the other one being holy communion. He's saying every time you sit down to the table, that's a sacrament. You are experiencing the grace of God through some tangible means, through bread, through drink. He says he goes forth to his labor. He exercises the office of the priesthood. You are priests, friends. Your job is to connect people to God. That's, that's really what priests do, very simply. They connect people to God. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. In other words, every part of our lives is an opportunity for worship. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we wear, everything we eat is an opportunity to give glory to God. So I want to share with you this morning three big ideas. If you're wondering, okay, what does this look like in real life? Let me try to give you an idea about what this looks like in real life and send you home today with three big ideas that you can, can get your hands around and your head around to figure out how do we live in this way together. So the first big idea is this. Work as though God is your boss. Now, anyone who's ever had a job, you've had a boss, haven't you? You have had a supervisor, you have had a client, you have had a market segment that you are trying to work to satisfy. Or maybe if you work in the home, maybe you're trying to satisfy your spouse or your child or your parent. Uh, and so I want to invite you instead, live and work as though God is your boss. Now, at first, maybe that sounds to you like a terrible idea because, you know, at least with a human supervisor, when he or she is on vacation, I can take kind of a longer lunch on Tuesdays. And, you know, when, when, when the boss is out, I can kind of leave early on Fridays and maybe no one will notice. Well, you're telling me if God is my boss, I know God can see everything all the time. And so, man, that, that means I'm really going to have to, uh, you know, be, be on the ball. Friends, not to worry. God is a gracious and merciful kind of boss. And I want to show you what I mean by that. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Live in order to please God. Live in order to please God. Now, this is not the same thing as saying live in order to appease God. Let me talk about the difference. When you live in order to please God, that means you are living to bring God pleasure. You are living in a way that makes God happy. Uh, and what is it that makes God happy? What is it that God enjoys? Well, in this context, what God enjoys is when you use the gifts that God has given you to bless others. God enjoys that very, very much. That brings pleasure to God. Now, what Paul is not saying is he's not suggesting we try to uh, work hard to earn God's love. He's not saying, you know, uh, try to avoid God's wrath, try to pacify or, or placate God, or try to get on God's good side. That would be trying to appease God. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to do that. 
You don't have to appease God. And do you know why not? Because God already loves you. God already loves you just the way you are. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. So you don't have to appease God. You're instead invited to please God. You see, when, when we realize that God loves us no matter what, we have this sort of freedom, this, uh, this liberation where we no longer have to work to try to prove ourselves worthy. You know, we don't, self-justification is not required. All, all we do then is work for the pleasure of it, for God's pleasure and for our pleasure. And so maybe some of you are thinking, you know, my job isn't really that pleasurable all the time. Uh, it brings pleasure to God, friends. Trust me, it does. And here's the great irony in this. I have discovered, and maybe you have, when we work to please ourselves, we end up being miserable. You ever notice that? When we put ourselves first and we try to do for us and we say, me, 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 we end up just being in an awful, awful place. You see, unless we've experienced the grace of God and unless we're in, we know we're saved not by our own work, unless we realize the work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient for us, we're always going to be striving after something that we'll never be able to attain or earn on our own. But... But when you know that God loves you, not because of what you've done, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, when you have found acceptance that only God can give, when you've been freed from the tyranny of trying to earn God's favor, then and only then will you be able to live and work for the sheer joy of pleasing your master, your boss, the God who loves you. First big idea, work as though God is your boss. Second big idea, we are co-creators with God. We are co-creators with God. Think with me about what you know about the creation story in Genesis. What was the first occupation that humans had? What was their first job? Do you remember? Someone said it. Farming, right? Gardening. So God put humans in the garden. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. The first job was farming, was gardening, was, was digging in the soil and working with God to grow beautiful, life-giving things. Okay, now what does that have to do with worship? Well, let's think about it. When we think about worship in this room, what do we think of? We think of music, right? We think of Bible reading, we think of preaching, we think of the creed, and all those are good and right. But what do you know about the earliest notions of Judeo-Christian worship? What was the most fundamental element of worship for the earliest tradition of worship of God? Do you know what it was? Offering. It was offering. And why was it offering? Because the people of God are a bunch of farmers. And what did they have to give? They had grain and they had livestock. So they would build an altar, and they would come, and they would say, God, thank you so much for your generosity, for making the sun to shine on us and the rain to fall softly on our fields so that green things can grow, so that I can feed my kids. God, thank you very much. This is my worship, my thanksgiving to you, O God. And so at its fundamental uh, origins, worship is offering. Now, here's the thing. Most of us are not farmers, right? And so we don't grow livestock or, or grain, but we can create the way farmers create together with God's help. And so we make art, and we draft financial reports, and we design medical treatments, and we make lesson plans, and we build 
roads. In other words, God has invited us to help make a world, to help create communities where people can thrive. In partnership with God, who is the original creator, human beings are able to make all sorts of extraordinary things. You ever thought about all the amazing things that humans can make? Paintings and poetry and spreadsheets and omelets and babies? How about, how about human beings? Isn't it amazing? God said to a man and a woman, I want you to help me create the next generation of human beings. And so go be fruitful and multiply. I just think that's extraordinary. So we make tables and we make snow angels and we make telescopes that see into the far reaches of space and we make cars that can drive themselves. And every single one of these things bears the stamp of our human creativity. Our human creativity is on each of those things in the same way that God's creativity is born on our hearts because we are made in the image of God. If you're not sure about this idea that we are co-creators, friends, all you have to do is give a child a piece of paper and a crayon and you will see that human beings were born. They were made to create. We are made to create. We are made to bring order out of chaos. We are born to take the raw materials of this world, like pencil and paper, like computer keyboards and asphalt and concrete, and our minds and our hearts and our wills, and use them in service to God and to our neighbors. So second big idea, we are co-creators with God. Big idea number three. The goal of our work is fruitfulness. We are called to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. Now, this is confession time. I used to not believe this. I used to think that the main thing is faithfulness, that as long as you believe in Jesus, as long as you say your prayers and read the Bible and come to church, then that, that's enough. Because, well, isn't it God who you know, takes care of the fruitfulness? And there is a sense in which God compensates for our deficiencies. There is a sense in which we plant seeds and water them, but it's God who gives the growth. And yet I've realized it's not enough to simply be faithful. It's not enough to agree in my mind to a set of religious ideas Jesus said that the world will know us by our what? Fruit. The world will know us by our fruit, by what we produce. And this is our response to what God has done for us. This is not us earning God's love. God loved us already. This is us saying, thank you, God, for loving me in this way. Now, what can I do to bless someone else? In Jesus' name, let me bear fruit, God, with your help for your kingdom. Now, notice, fruitfulness, friends, is not the same as success, right? The world tells us that success means bigger or better or faster or more expensive. And we're saying no, not necessarily, but we're saying a biblical notion of fruitfulness means that we produce something good in our hearts and lives and relationships for the blessing of other people. I want to try to show you what I mean this morning. Uh, my English teachers always told me, show, don't tell. Right, so I want to try to show you what this looks like. I've got a, a short video clip for you. This is our sister, Joyce Candler, and uh, this is her story. One of the things I so appreciate about Joyce's faith is, is she names the way God is at work in the world to other people so that they can see the fruit that is being born by the grace of God. Friends, uh, I regret that religious people have, have so narrowly defined the work of the gospel that we have come to believe it's something added on. It's something extracurricular. It's something we sort of do in our spare time, right? Because the reality for most of us is we have to work, right? We have to, unless you're independently wealthy, 
uh, you've got to work and you've got to put food on the table. And so we, we tell ourselves, okay, you know, I'll, I'll volunteer an hour here or an hour there at church and, and that'll be my mission, but then sort of this is real life over here. And, and, and the reality, we've, we've missed this incredible opportunity that our whole lives are in mission to the world. Everything we do can and should bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Look at what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, what I want you to notice here, and you, you can't know just by looking at this one verse, is the word that is interpreted as good works is the same for the word work. Work is part of our good works. We hear good works, we think, oh, that means charity. You know, that means a mission project. Yes, it does mean that. It also means the work that you do with your hands every day of your life. God created us in Christ Jesus to do good work. Not only charity for the poor, yes, that's absolutely important, but also to be contributors to the common good. Friends, every day is an opportunity. So here's my proposal. My proposal is that we would gather here every week in this room, but that this would not be an ending. This would be a beginning. This room would be a refueling station where we come to get filled back up again. Because when you're out there in the world, you get drained, don't you? And real life and real work and real relationships just take it out of you. And so we need to come and get filled back up again. So come every week in this room, get filled back up again, and let this be a launching pad so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is sending us out into the world to transform it with God's love. Amen.